Just a warning, Classified the podcast may contain content which is distressing for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the fifth episode of Classified, the podcast. My name is Catherine Ray Robinson and I'm your host and I'm here with our producer, Simon Shipley. On this episode, we will be looking into how your journal could potentially convict you of a crime. I'm serious. And later, have you ever thought about how you would bury a body? Well, I haven't and I have to answer that question later. But coming up next, we're going to look into an Australian case that hasn't been solved in 52 years. Imagine the devastation of having a child go missing. The panic, the anger and the grief would be almost too much to cope with. Now imagine having all three of your children go missing at once. That was the reality for Jim and Nancy Beaumont. Their children, Jane, Anna and Grant Beaumont, all went missing on Australia Day, January 26th, 1966. Not far from their suburban home in Adelaide. It's one of Australia's most enduring mysteries. The disappearance in Adelaide of the Beaumont children, Jane, Anna and Grant. It was a hot Australia day in 1966 when the three siblings aged nine, seven and four left their home and headed for nearby Glenelg Beach. Their parents never saw them again. Their parents trusted Jane, who was the eldest and nine at the time, to look after her younger siblings, who were seven and four, on their way to the beach and on their way back home. They caught the bus at 8.45am and their mum, Nancy, expected them to either ride the noon bus or the 2pm bus back home. When they didn't come home on either bus, Nancy started to freak out. Her husband, Jim, returned home from work at about 3pm and he drove straight to the beach to find the children. When he couldn't find them, he returned home and him and Nancy searched the local streets and all of their friends' houses who live nearby to see if they might have gone somewhere after their trip to the beach that their parents didn't approve. With no luck, at around 5pm, they went to the local police station and notified the police that their kids had gone missing. After they were reported missing, between the police and local volunteers, they searched every part of the beach, all the local drain pipes were searched, and hundreds of witnesses came forward with potential information. I don't believe that the children are uh, dead, and I'll cling on to the hope until there's evidence and the evidence found otherwise. Witnesses reported seeing the children on the beach with a young man. They were spotted at lunchtime at a local bakery. From there, they vanished. Several witnesses said that the children were seen with a tall, tan, thin-faced man with short blonde hair. Even though both parents said they left the house with only six shillings and a sixpence, which from what I gather is not a lot of money, a shopkeeper at the local bakery at the beach said that Jane came in to buy cakes and a meat pie with notes, which nobody could really explain how they would have that. 
On the last episode of the podcast, I talked about psychics and how they sometimes assist with criminal cases. Well, nine months after the children disappeared, a Dutch clairvoyant was flown in to help with the investigations because they had no leads and no answers. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to provide any information of substance. He kind of led them on a bit of a wild goose chase. He claimed that the children were buried under a newly constructed warehouse on an old brick factory site in Somerton Park. But after they excavated it, absolutely nothing was found. Decades go by, and in 2013, Channel 7 decided to conduct their own investigation into the case. After so many years with little to no new information coming in, they were able to find out some things which they thought needed to be looked into a little bit more. They said that local businessman Harry Phipps should be a potential suspect. Mr. Phipps's son Hayden gave information to the police saying that when he was 15 years old, he saw three children at his family home in Glenelg who looked exactly like the Beaumont children. You said you saw the kids. Yeah, I've seen them come in on their, on their own and the description matched them identically. They were the right age, the right description, the whole thing. He also let slip that his father was very abusive to him when he was younger. His father passed away in 2004, so they weren't able to actually ask him about these allegations. But this information did lead to an excavation and search using ground penetrating radar at a factory that Mr. Phipps used to own when he was alive. Unfortunately, nothing was found. However, one really creepy fact emerged, which was that after Mr. Phipps was ousted in the Channel 7 coverage, two brothers came forward saying that Mr. Phipps had paid them days after the children had gone missing to dig a really big hole somewhere in the factory site. The purpose of this press conference is to update you all in respect to some recent developments in relation to the disappearance of Jane, Anna and Grant Beaumont in 1966. Earlier in 2018, South Australia police decided that they wanted to do another search of the factory site after getting more information about it. They paid for geophysical testing of some areas of the site and they did come up with an anomaly. There weren't any bones detected, but there was evidence that the soil beneath the surface had been moved around a lot. A month later, a small area of the site was again dug up, but they weren't able to find anything yet again. It does seem super unlikely to me that this case will ever be solved just due to the fact that it was so long ago and anyone who is potentially involved may have passed away since then. Both parents of the three kids, Jim and Nancy, are in their early 90s now and it would be incredible to be able to give them closure before they pass. But unless any new information or anyone new comes forward with any evidence, they may never get any answers. Coming up next, we're going to talk about how your journal could convict you of a crime. One really interesting part of forensics for me is handwriting analysis. So kind of like fingerprints, someone's handwriting is tailored to them. It's unique and it's personalized. This makes forging handwriting actually incredibly difficult. And that's why it's so useful as a tool to catch criminals. 
Handwriting analysis hasn't always had heaps of credibility, but in 1999, courts in the US decided that it was definitely a legitimate form of testimony due to how much research and accuracy it was having amongst experts. Since then, the title of Forensic Document Examiner has been created and used by Scotland Yard, the FBI, the Secret Service, and most law enforcement agencies. So everyone's handwriting has some natural variation due to a bunch of different factors, like whether or not you're using a pen, a pencil, how old you are, your mood, whether or not you're rushing, all of this has an impact on how your handwriting turns out. However, despite those things, your handwriting does tend to follow a specific style, such as the slant or curl of a letter, the height, all these things become a subconscious trait, so you don't even know that you're doing it. When forensic experts are presented with a document and they need to distinguish handwriting, they tend to look at 12 different factors to try and figure out who wrote it. These factors fall into three categories, letter form, line form and formatting. So these traits are line quality, so are the letters shaky or even, spacing, so do you write crowded or evenly spread out, they look at size consistency, whether or not your words are continuous, whether the pen was lifted during the sentence, are your letters complete, are some of your connectors missing, cursive, printed, slanted, fancy curls, loops, dots on I's, crosses on T's, heaps of stuff. So you can see how we write is a huge tell and it's a lot of effort to try and alter each trait in an attempt to deceive investigators. The first thing experts will do is take note of all the obvious traits and what makes someone's handwriting unique and jot all of that down. They then need to compare the evidence with something. So often they'll get a suspect to write on a piece of paper or if they're not cooperative, which as you can imagine, a lot wouldn't be. It's pretty easy to find things to compare it to. Letters, diaries, cards, even a grocery list. Often you can also tell someone's age, what their first spoken language is, their writing ability, their gender, from paragraphs or even just lines of text for heaps of reasons. One really good example of this was the Jean Benet Ramsey case. Report 911 emergency. Oh, we Police, we are kidnapping. Hurry, right, please. Explain to me what's going on, okay? There, we have a, there's a note left in our daughter's gone. A note was left in your daughter's yes. gone? On December 26, 1996, at 5.52 a.m., six-year-old Jean Benet Ramsey was reported kidnapped by her mother. Later that day, she was found dead in her home. For whoever doesn't know about this case, in 1996, the body of a six-year-old beauty queen, Jean Benet Ramsey, was found in her family's home. It was ruled in asphyxiation by strangulation. No suspect was ever found guilty of the crime. The Ramsey family was technically cleared in 2008, despite a lot of speculation and anger about their potential involvement in her murder. There was a ransom note that Patsy, Jean Benet's mother, reported finding at the bottom of the stairs. It was two and a half pages long and was written on paper from a notebook that was found in the Ramsey's home. It was addressed to Mr. Ramsey, it demanded $118,000 and warned Patsy and her husband John that if they call the authorities or alert anyone, they'll kill her. 
A lot of question marks surrounded this note, but it was an amazing piece of evidence throughout the case from a handwriting perspective, total goldmine, because it was so long for a ransom note, which are typically no more than a paragraph or two at most. From that note, they were able to determine that the writing ability was high. They spoke English as a first language due to words like countermeasure and particularly being spelt correctly, which are apparently examples of words that foreign language speakers might mess up. They were likely in their 30s due to the lack of slang in the letter, and there was a great deal of maternalistic sentiment found in the letter. Handwriting expert Sina Wong believed that it was highly probable that Patsy actually wrote the note not just because of those similarities, but also because she spent weeks analysing the note with a hundred examples of Patsy's writing and found heaps of similarities between them. Wong says that the ransom note had the letter A written in four different variations and Patsy Ramsey wrote the letter A in those same four ways in birthday cards and letters that she went through. She ended up finding over 200 similarities between the comparative samples she was given. These included size consistency, formatting techniques, slanting, and heaps of others. As I said, none of the family was ever indicted for her murder, but given the credibility now given to handwriting analysis, it does seem the similarities are too huge to be a coincidence, especially considering how hard it is to alter your handwriting to a really large degree. It's kind of incredible how much handwriting can tell us just by itself. It makes me notice how I write things and how hard it would be to try and write so differently that I'd be able to deceive someone to believe it's someone else's handwriting. Given what we now know forensic experts can do and how many markers they can pick up on, I don't think anyone would win trying to go up against them. I know that I definitely wouldn't. So next time you're trying to forge a signature, think again. Coming up next, we're going to answer your questions, one of which is how would you hide a body? Now it's time to answer your questions. If you want to send us one to answer in the Q&A, send them to classifiedthepodcast at gmail.com and I might answer it in the next episode. So the first question, how would you get rid of a body if you accidentally killed someone? Okay, so this is assuming that I'm already corrupt as hell and have decided not to turn myself in. That's the, just to, you know, preface that. I've decided to to cover it up. Okay. Just getting in that mindset. So my gut instinct is to keep it somewhere that I could regularly check on it. That might sound really creepy, but I feel like if it was really far away, I would get so anxious that like someone would just stumble on it and then that's it. Like it's out of my control. It's done. But then burying a body in your backyard. I mean, there's just no way out of that. Like if it's found, you're done, you're gone. Whereas if you bury it in the woods or something, or like a a, a forest or something like that, you, you have the chance that if someone stumbles on it, 
it could it could be anyone like you could still be home free if there's nothing on it but i i think it's really hard to bury a body and have killed that person and have like no dna on it nothing so i think maybe seriously maybe the backyard for me so that it's always in my sight i had this conversation with simon a producer and he said that he would dump a body at sea and i think that's so bloody dumb because because you would have to take it to see like there's surveillance footage everywhere like there's cameras on the streets there's cameras in shops there's cameras everywhere and you wouldn't want to drive your car to the docks or wherever the hell you're going to chuck it in there because they could track you like on the roads with like cameras and stuff but then you rent a car I mean, how do you rent a car without giving your name to the person that you're renting it to? And then that's super sus. You know, I have a vehicle, but I just chose to rent one and that person just happened to go missing on that. I don't know what to tell you. Like, that just doesn't happen. And then the boat. Like, where do you get the boat? I mean, and then he just took it out for a hot minute and rode it back on. Like, I just... It's just so dumb. I I think the sea thing is so stupid. I'm sorry. Um... Yeah, backyard. Yeah, that's the way forward. I'm sticking with it. I'm really not sick enough in the head to be like, oh, I think I'd just burn it and, you know, chuck some acid on it and dismember it. I mean, I think that that indicates a higher level of, like, sicko. I feel like if you accidentally kill someone, you're not going to be like, well, I mean, i got to chop it up. I mean, like, no, like, that's... That's that's bad territory. I'm not willing to venture there. I think another big problem for me is I'm like 53 kilos and I would have to lift the body and I can't do a push-up without straining myself. So I feel like having to lift someone far away or into a car or, I mean, that's just, that's just too much trouble. I'm not going to be able to do that unassisted. And I feel like then you're just, you're being a real asshole because you've got to go and get someone else and drag them into the problem. And I feel like that's just, that's just poor form. I'm not, I'm not doing that to someone else. So it's pretty much has to stay in the backyard because I'm weak as hell and I can't move it. And that's, that's the simple fact of it really. (laughs) Okay. Now on to question two, do you think crime dramas are accurate? This is a brilliant question. I could just rant on about this for hours, but I'll spare you. I think as I've watched so many crime dramas, I've become like a proper, like a proper expert (laughs) on crime dramas. And you can spot a crap one from a mile away. Like, I think the worst, I'll probably get hate for this, but I think the worst crime drama is CSI. Like, I think it's just rubbish. Like, it's not even well acted. But apart from that, it is, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm making enemies here, but it's just terrible. Like that guy Horatio that takes his sunnies off every time he like makes a statement and like looks at that, like, what is that? Like, that's just, it's rubbish. But they make all of these mistakes. Like they walk in, they're at a crime scene, right? And all the girls have their hair out. They're wearing inappropriate clothing to be going to a crime scene, to be quite honest. And they walk on in, they don't put any like, shoe covers on they don't even have gloves on they're just waving their dna left right and bloody center and it's just going everywhere hair here skin follicle here treading over potential evidence like willy-nilly 
I mean, it's just, it's just not accurate. And I feel like English shows, like English drama, crime drama, I mean, is so good. Like they tick all the boxes. It's so accurate. I feel like, well, I'm saying it's so accurate. I've never been on a legit crime scene, but you know, you know what I'm saying? I feel like it's more true to life. They take all the good precautions. I feel like it's accurate. But one American crime drama that I do actually really like is Law and Order SVU. I've watched that for years and I feel like it's the most accurate of crime dramas out there. I just feel like it's not super stylized in the sense that while some of the cases might be a little bit far-fetched, I feel like it's it doesn't always end with, you know, unicorns and rainbows and, you know, they don't always solve the case and sometimes you're left really frustrated. And But I feel like that's good. I feel like it's more like what it would be like to investigate crimes and then try them. I feel like that's why people like it because it's not necessarily perfect. Whereas, you know, shows like CSI and Criminal Minds, while I know a lot of people do really love those shows, I do think that it's a little bit inaccurate in the sense that, most of them are just everything's good at the end and they'll stumble across a piece of evidence just they'll they'll be in a really hard case and then it just falls in their lap and it'll be solved by the end of it and I just it's that's not what investigating cases is like so many cases go unsolved often they don't find that amazing piece of evidence that solves the case for them and I think it just sets an unrealistic standard for how cases get investigated because it's definitely not like that from what I know. (laughs) I do think crime dramas on TV though is a good thing, whichever one of them you do like, because it did sort of push crime into the mainstream a little bit and made it a lot more relative for people. And so many people watch crime drama, which I totally understand and totally love. And I also think people being fascinated with made up cases did push true crime into the mainstream as well. And people started to wonder about real cases and unsolved cases and fascinating cases that are true to life and did really happen. And that's obviously amazing because I'm one of those people and I love true crime. And I might not have discovered true crime if I didn't watch heaps of crime dramas. So that definitely is a plus. episode of Classified the Podcast, we are going to be talking about something that I love and am very passionate about, and that is the Kennedys. We'll be taking a look at the assassination of JFK. We'll also be exploring the tragic tale of Alison Baden-Clay. Then we'll be exploring some controversial topics like capital punishment and prisoner rehabilitation. Rehabilitation. 